Let's see what the stew has in store for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by our awesome Patreon backers like the astounding Amadeo Rosa, the captivating Chris Franklin, and the esteemed Eric Heimel. Today, we have myself, Ange, along with Jared and Senda, and we are going to talk about world building for your games at the table with your players. Before we dive into that main topic, though, we're going to ask our Get to Know a Gnome question, which today is, what's one of your favorite pre-existing worlds to play or run games in that you keep coming back to? Jared, I'm going to start with you. There's probably two that are more likely than any other ones, but... I'm not saying one because there's a possibility you're going to say it. So I'm going to say Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say Star Wars because I've run a whole lot in Star Wars. I've run it across multiple systems. I've run multiple campaigns. I've run two campaigns at the same time in, in Star Wars where they were interconnected. I know people talk about how canon can be restricting, but it's a freaking huge galaxy and I can usually find some corner of the galaxy somewhere where I can tell stories that doesn't fly in the face of any of the big stories. Yep. I also think part of this plays into the fact that my Star Wars toys were some of the first toys that I can remember. So I've been making up stories in my head about Star Wars for as long as I can remember. <laughs> <laughs> nice. What about you, Senda? I was just thinking about this really hard while Jared was talking because the interesting <laughs> thing for me is that I rarely play the same games over and over again, so I just don't revisit things a lot, which is interesting. Like, it's just, it's a symptom of the way that I play games right now. I mean, it's just a different style. Exactly. So here's what I will say. The sort of pre-existing worlds that I come back to the most tend to be my convention games because I don't write new games for every single convention, mm -hmm. right? So I will run those games over and over. And the two that I have run of the absolute most and were always a joy... Um, is that I had an all-out-of-bubblegum game that I ran in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which was just wild fun because it started as the Vogons announced that they were destroying the planet and like, hey, you got five minutes to get off the planet. And then from there, it just turned into chaos um, of people <laughs> turning into Priuses, into rocket ships or building ladders up to the Vogon ships through the atmosphere. Like it, the, the things that people come up with are great. Um, and I run that one a lot. And I would... I will absolutely someday run that again. And then the other one, <laughs> this is sort of generalized because it's not really specific, but um, so it's sort of genre-esque, but I'm going to say Magical Girls kind of in bunny ears as a world slash setting <laughs> because there is so much contextual sort of pre-existing stereotype about what it means to play that kind of story. I think that counts. It feels like it kind of all just lives in the same place, right? <laughs> like, if you think Sailor Moon, I have played in that world a lot across both games that I have run and played in and many game systems, right? <laughs> so those are the two that I will say. It's kind of funny because it's a world with very specific tropes, but not a lot of specific features. <laughs> 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 Except Tokyo Tower and Cherry Blossoms, always Cherry Blossoms. Uh, Ange, what's your favorite pre-existing world? I'm going to give an honorable mention to Eberron, because Eberron is my favorite D&D &D setting. I love going back there. There's a lot of places I still need to visit, still need to go, both as a player and as a GM. 
Some people might say my answer is going to be cheating, but I'm going to say Marvel or DC comic books. Yes, I know they are different things, (laughs) but there's a lot of shared love of both of them among the people I game with. (laughs) And I say this because this past weekend I was at a what one of my coworker calls a small bespoke artisanal convention, which was 30 of us getting together to play games in a hotel (laughs) for a weekend. And on Friday night, I got to play a Marvel Midnight Suns game where I got to play Magic, Ileana Rasputin, and talk in my really bad fake Russian accent and make smart-ass comments all night long. (laughs) Uh, And then on Saturday afternoon, I got to play Wonder Woman in a Justice League game and basically defeat cosmic evil with my fellow Justice League members. What you do, Senda, I totally understand. There are folks who just like doing something new every time. They don't necessarily feel the need to do the pre-existing canonical characters of any given universe. But I find I have just a special joy in taking on some of those canon characters in a game with a GM who understands the world, understands the genre, understands the characters, and other players at the table who also The joy of the player playing Batman and the player playing Superman, you know, Superman finally losing it, punching the bad guy and Batman rolling his eyes and going, finally, you know, it's just, (laughs) I was flying high after this weekend and gaming. That's kind of what I love. The one that I was not going to mention was Marvel. So I was right. You were right. You were right. You were right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, 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 I was sitting here thinking and I'm like, well, it's Marvel. And I'm like. I will fight anyone to play Wonder Woman in my friend Jason Altman's Justice League's game. It's just a thing. So I'm I'm kind of, even though I'm more of Marvel, I will play in DC games with the right GMs. So while there are a wide variety of games out there with established settings, as we just mentioned, there are a large number that encourage the GM to collaborate with their players to create the world together at the table. Heck, there are even games out there that are just about world building, like Microscope or Decima. And we thought it would be an interesting topic to get together and talk about our experiences with collaborative world building with our players or as a player with a GM who is doing this collaborative world building. So what kind of experiences do you all have with collaborative world building for your games? Uh, Senda, you go first this time. Yeah, this is my primary mode. (laughs) This is like I'm trying to remember the last time that this wasn't how I ran or played a game. So it's been probably about six or seven years, which is a lot of games and a lot of gaming. I love it a lot. I don't know. (laughs) I I guess I personally can't say uh, enough good things about basically collaboratively group building worlds as a GM or as a player because of the kind of investment that it builds in the game. And because as a GM of the kind of love letters, way signs that it points you in, because it's very easy to tell what your your players are really excited about, mm-hmm. which is really fantastic. And it has resulted in games for me that can be personal in a way that you don't, you, you, it's certainly not that you can't accomplish really personal stories with pre-existing settings, right? I don't want to sound like that at all, but it can sometimes be easier to create stories that feel really personal when you have built the world to create the exact circumstances that you need Mm -hmm. to tell that kind of really personal story. 
So it's really funny. I mentioned this on Pandas last week, like literally behind my head right now. No one can see it except these two (laughs) is um, a character portrait from one of our longest running campaigns that was absolutely a super personal story for a number of the different players at the table for various reasons. And that game started off as a pretty classic Tales from the Loop game and went off the rails really quickly. (laughs) (laughs) To wrap up my answer to the actual question, the experience that I have with collaborative world building is that even when this particular group that I've been playing with for a long time now, even when we try to play someone else's world, when we veer off, we never stop ourselves. We're always like, you know what? This is ours now. And so even when it's not a session zero build of the world together, although it frequently is, but even when it hasn't been that, it always ends up being that (laughs) in a way that um, is really wild, in a way that sometimes defies the mechanics of the game itself, because we would prefer to prioritize the collaborative building of our story and world over the, (laughs) the existence of said mechanics. Yeah. So I guess that's what I would say my experience with it is. I love it. I love to prioritize it. I like doing it both kind of at loose ends in very big ways, starting super broad and getting small. I like to do it within specific sandbox boundaries of games that tell you, you know, like, this is Monster Hearts and you're going to play this kind of game, but now you have to build a world inside of that because there's a lot of that as well. Yeah. And I love to play it as like the quiet year, like let's just sit down and build a world together or like Noirlandia, like let's build a civilization. Um, Sorry, Noirlandia is the mystery one. Questlandia is the one I'm thinking of. My apologies. And so I, I guess I kind of just love all the forms of it in all the ways that it happens. And I like playing those games. So I will preface all of this by saying I'm old. When my group started playing RPGs, it was back in the 80s. Yep. (laughs) A lot of our um, early role playing was literally us watching TV shows and movies and deciding that various things from vaguely the same genre should all go into a setting. Our first D&D campaign was an alternate Earth that had elements from like the Marvel Thor comics that Walt Simonson was writing in it. We decided to do a Marvel game that was like Days of Future Past, but we also wanted it to be with uh, combat chainsaws because we saw that in some Mad Max movie. Our top secret SI game, we made up our own like super spy agency, and this came from like watching James Bond, G.I. Joe, and Rambo. So, I mean, (laughs) I'm not going to say they were well-structured or thought out, but they were definitely collaborative (laughs) world building where it was just us sitting in my friend's basement coming up with hey, we really liked all of these things. Let's make sure that all of this stuff makes it in, whether it makes sense or not. (laughs) In more recent years, um, I've been playing a lot more stuff. Like, I've run a ton of uh, PBTA games, and a lot of that has to do with creating your world within a specific genre. So where I have done this a lot, where I've run multiple games, multiple campaigns, has been like Monster of the Week, Masks, Demigods where you do have the general theme of your monster hunters or your teenage superheroes or you're the children of gods, but you still have a lot of room to figure out where the focus is and, you know, what specific elements you're going to use. And everybody at the table can kind of throw their own things in there. And one thing that I wanted to throw in there because it was a super memorable thing that we did right before the pandemic was the uh, RPG Spectaculars has 
a setting book and it is not a setting book like you would think where it tells you exactly, you know, like this is this city and this is this organization. It's actually a list of sheets where it asks you questions about a superhero setting. And it will ask you things like, you know, is there a super spy agency that regulates supers? And if you answer yes, you turn to this other page and you start filling out questions. Is there like some really powerful cosmic artifact in this setting? And if you say yes, you actually like fill that in on several of the pages so that it is automatically the answer for certain things. That was one of the neatest world building exercises that we've gone through because it was on one hand very guided, but on the other hand, you had a lot of room to customize what the setting was going to look like. That sounds very cool. It is very neat. Have you actually gotten to play it yet? Because I know with the pandemic, you never actually got it off the ground. We played two whole sessions of it. We were about to start a campaign that was going to be running on Saturdays, and that's when the pandemic hit. So I've done um, a short campaign with Monster of the Week. I've done several short campaigns with Uncharted Worlds. I tried to do a short campaign with Masks. Um, and those are probably the games I've had the most experience with that are designed to be collaborative with your table as you set up the campaign. Like Jared said, all of them have their certain zone that you're supposed to be in. You are monster hunters. You are people on a spaceship doing stuff in space. You are young superheroes. You know, each of these has their framework, but then with the players, you figure out what aspect of this genre do you want to explore? What are you most interested in? What are you, who are your characters? What is their role in this world? You know, who are the people they know? And you start creating the world around them. But I've also started doing it even with more traditional games that don't necessarily have it built in. With my current D&D game, we talked about, like, what type of things they were interested in. And once their characters were made and I knew what their characters were done, I basically crafted things that were related to those characters that w I wouldn't have done if they had not made that character. So it kind of leads one from the other. You know, speaking of doing it for something like D&D, &D, where it's not inherently designed for the game, have either of you done it for games that don't have it inherently built in to the system? I see you nodding your head, Senda. Always. <laughs> the weird part about talking about this for me is it's a, it's a little bit more like when was the last time I didn't use it? Yeah. So it's, it's a little bit hard for me to try and pinpoint, for example, specific games where I have or haven't used it because I could just tell you every single game that I've played for the last, I don't know how many years, um, it, it was an expectation, including systems that didn't necessarily have that written in as something that you would do. But also something that we did very frequently on She's a Super Geek and those monthly games, you know, and sometimes that was recorded and sometimes that wasn't, but that was still occurring to create our little short stories almost all the time. And I think what's interesting about this as a topic when we talk about world building, and I think we've all ended up mentioning it at some point along the path here, right, is that there are some games that put walls around what kind of world you would define to play in and some that don't. So sometimes the walls might be closer in about how many decisions you get to make. And sometimes the walls are a lot further out and you can make all kinds of decisions, which I mean, is also fun, right? But sometimes it's easier to make decisions when they're close in, when you have a very specific path of decisions to make. So I guess what I'm going to say for that is I play a ton of Powered by the Apocalypse. So I play in that style of sandbox a lot. And then games like Our Traveling Home, so phenomenal for world building together um, and such a, such a wonderful game. I really love it. And then one of the games that 
my group tends to come back to a lot is a game called Yes by Wen Rachel, who used to also write for this too. The thing about Yes is that it's a game in structure more than a game in mechanics. And so while you know the structure of the story that you will be telling, you do not really know what the world is, right? Like we can make some baseline assumptions based on the kind of story, but we used that framework to do everything from superheroes, (laughs) our own universe of superheroes, the really chaos ones, to very straightforward, much more along the lines of the intention of the game, queer Someone comes home from the city on a holiday to their family's pumpkin patch. And now it's the great Halloween love story because it's Halloween Eve because we weren't doing Christmas. Right. And like follow that path really closely, but creating a world in which there was actually hauntings and stuff happening at the same time. But it was still like a Hallmark movie. A Hallmark movie with ghosts. With ghosts, right? Like we weren't the ghosts. I'd actually watch that. But there were ghosts, right? Like (laughs) (laughs) that's one of the games I've used it with really extensively. And then we've played a lot of Powered by the Apocalypse and a lot of other games that fall into sort of the category of games defined by um, scene structure. I guess is sort of what I'm going for. Mm -hmm. Some of those are looser. Some of those are broader. Like I happen to mention yes and our traveling home, which both do that. Um, And like once more into the void, same kind of idea. Um, There's a whole, whole ton of um, games like that that do that, that I think leave some really broad space by saying, here's the story you're going to tell. You're like, cool, that story is a science fiction story. And then you say things like, well, okay, so like, what was the battle that is the reason we don't talk to each other anymore? And what was the all of this stuff? So Jared, what have you done it for that it's not inherently designed for it? And you've seen this a few times, but um, I've kind of incorporated it now into my session zero where I want the players to contribute a character and a location and their connection to one other character so that all of that exists going into the game at the start. Sometimes it's something neat, like, you know, I I think in our Eberron game, we came up with the food cart, you know, that had the breakfast food so that we always had that like as a uh, touchstone whenever, you know, we had like an early morning scene. And I really like things like that. And I like having like, for example, those NPCs that all of you came up with so that when you have somebody that's asking for help, it's more meaningful because it's you that created it. You know, you have an idea how this character relates to your character and now they need help. So now it's a personal thing. It's not just this random NPC that shows up and says, I need help. Mm-hmm. You might still want to help them, but you're not invested in that. So, I mean, that's been something that I've worked into uh, my session zeros for just about everything that I run at this point now. I did something similar for my most recent D&D game. I didn't ask them for locations, but I asked them because the whole scenario was set up that they were applying to be on Sharn's Next Top Adventurer. It was essentially a reality show type thing where they were basically competing to earn positions on an expedition to Zendrick. So it was very much set up the way a reality show type of thing would have been where you compete in waves, stuff like this. And I asked each of them to come up with one other competitor, somebody else who was also there to join. And like some of them came up with. This is my best friend from home that has come with me to also compete. This is the person I met on the road while coming here to compete. A couple of them came up with just, uh, it's some random person I don't know. One of the players came up with that guy I can't stand. He's a jerk in the bars. He only ever brags about everything. I just (laughs) want to see him lose. Gave definitely some fodder 
for the initial stages of the campaign uh, with the NPCs they were interacting with, but also gave some NPCs that they cared about. So what happened to them mattered. And I do think it's something that probably, whether or not a GM even intends it to be, it's part of almost everyone's session zero. Because you're figuring out who your players want to play, which inherently tells you what they're looking for in the game, in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's part of world building. It's not fun to play a game when your GM doesn't take into account your characters in terms of what they create for the plot or the world around you. Oh, yeah. It's challenging at that point. It always should should have some some meaning, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a whole other topic that I could go on a rant on, mm-hmm. but this is why I don't do organized play, mm-hmm. uh, because my character means nothing to the adventure that the GM is bringing to the table. Yeah. And it's... In my mind, one of the worst sins a GM can do with a one-shot at a convention is to just not have given any thought whatsoever to the characters and their relationship to the adventure. I am still mad at the guy who basically had two characters in the group to choose from because he was playing for six people and only four of the characters could actually do anything on the mission we were on. Like, there was absolutely literally nothing that me and the other character could do because 90% of the game was ship combat flying away from things hunting us. Wow. And I was playing the doctor and my friend was playing the diplomat. Why are these characters here? But that's a whole other topic. It is a whole other topic. That I could definitely go on a rant on. But world building together so that you know those characters are going to be there. You plan for that. That's what we're getting at. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Do you find that there are any pitfalls? With collaborative world building that you found stumbling blocks that don't work the way you want them to when you're trying to incorporate this into a game. Jared, I'll start with you this time. So sometimes your players will come up with stuff that is really, really good and you want to use it right off the bat. And it would probably be better if you let it simmer a little bit and do the slow roll of, you know, introducing that. But it's like, this is really good. This is awesome. And I mean, it's a good problem to have, but at the same time, if you do want to build a campaign that has some longevity to it, you don't necessarily want to pull the trigger on that in the first session. You might hint at it, but there is that idea of like, how am I going to pace this out? When am I going to actually touch on some of these these things? Mm -hmm. There's also those instances where the thing about world building that is really exciting to you does not translate to everybody that you're trying to build the world with. Yeah. <laughs> this was a demigods game that I was running for a convention, but we were trying to figure out, you know, you have the spindle, which is the thing that brought everybody together. And it's oftentimes it's a place or a thing. And everybody was like, you know what? Coffee house sounds good. And there's one guy that's like, I don't understand why anybody would care about a coffee house. Oh, it was really hard <laughs> because it was like, okay, well, everybody moved in that direction. Cause we all kind of thought about like, oh, this is a comfortable place to sit around and talk and meet with people. Someone else didn't have that as a frame of reference. So then you have to kind of, okay, now we have to rewind enough and hope everybody gets momentum to really be engaged in the next thing that we come up with since that first one only hit for like 75% of the group. That is a problem when you have a majority of players who are into a thing and then you've got the (laughs) one roadblock that doesn't want to do that. And while... You know, I don't necessarily want to tell a player that doesn't want to do the thing that they're forced to. It's still very frustrating when you've got everyone else excited about that thing and the other player won't budge. And I get it. Sometimes 
I can easily picture a place where I'm nice and comfy and want to sit down and talk to people or read for a while where I could get out of the house and where I see some people that I recognize. But I also recognize not everybody has that same frame of reference. So maybe it just was never going to be a thing that resonated with them. They never watched Friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I haven't either, but <laughs> but I get the coffee house. Yeah. What about you, Senda? What, what do you feel are some of the pitfalls? The interesting thing, I think, and, and this is not to dissuade anyone from doing this, nor even to dissuade people from doing it at conventions, because I do this all the time at conventions. I do think that it's important when you're just going to sort of mass world build together to have some kind of content editing tool and to not be afraid to use it. For me, that's usually an X card and it shifts the expectation maybe a little bit on the X card from the original connotation a little bit more into like what For the Queen uses it for. Mm -hmm. Because you should be able to edit content for, of course, safety purposes, like 100%, absolutely. Right. But you can also content edit for like, that doesn't read to me, right? Like, or I don't get coffee houses, right? Like, mm -hmm. and then it's a moment and a way to create a conversation about, okay, cool, you don't get coffee houses. So how can we achieve something that is like a coffee house that the rest of us can still get behind or mm -hmm. is a coffee house, but is changed in some way so that you care about it too, like you own the coffee house. I don't know, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Whether that's a formalized tool, for me at conventions, it's usually something a little bit more formalized, like an X card or whether that is a very informal conversation. So like my group that I've been playing with for ages and ages, we always have an X card on the table for safety purposes. But if we're content editing for world building, we don't usually engage any really yeah. formalized tools. We just have conversations. So whatever that kind of looks like, the comfort to be able to edit content, I just I think is probably the important thing, right? To be able to say like this, this doesn't fit where the rest of us are seeing this going or um, I don't really like the feeling of that or whatever it is, right? Which is never like a screw you, your ideas are terrible. It is much more of a how can we take the feeling that you want from that thing that you just proposed that the rest of us were like, meh, or whatever, right? How can we take the feeling of that thing and still accomplish it in a way that the rest of us are cool with? How do we make this actually work? For everyone at the table. Yeah. It's interesting that you brought up uh, For the Queen because that, that was another thing that I was I was playing and running a lot at conventions. Not really running because you don't really run it, but I was facilitating it. Yeah. Explaining to people how to how to play it. You brought the deck of cards. That's yeah. facilitating for the <laughs> Yes. <laughs> he who carries the deck. This is what this game is. I'm going to be hype man now. Yeah. Uh, here, start reading the rules out loud. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The X card, it did come up quite a bit where it's not, it wasn't, um, this content makes me feel unsafe or this is not something I'm comfortable with. It was just, you know what? Somebody answered something real similar to this and it's not going to be fun to advance the story using this question. So let's just get rid of it. Yeah, exactly. That game changed my perspective on the multitude of ways to formally use the X card. And so using it for content editing, um, especially when you are specifically collaboratively like world building the place you're going to play together, um, I find to be a useful tool. I found that there, there's a couple of things that I, I have to be careful of when I'm doing the world building at the table. Mm -hmm. One, I have a player who does not do well being put on the spot. Mm -hmm. I have a couple of players that are not, do not do well being put on the spot. And I have to be mindful of this 
when we are doing something world building where they have enough time to think and ruminate on the idea so they can contribute as meaningfully as the other players who thrive on doing it on the spot. I once did a, in the middle of a campaign, I wanted to basically get them from point A to point B without having to play that entire journey out. But I wanted to acknowledge that that journey was not without peril. Mm -hmm. So we basically did like a storytelling thing where we used the story cards from a particular game, which I'm blanking on the name of right now. And then we also wrote some ideas down on index card and passed them out and ran them around. And basically when it was somebody's turn, it was like, okay, what's the next? next leg of the journey. What happened? And the player who struggles the most with being put on the spot got super defensive and refused to have his character partake in some of these wild ideas that people were throwing. Like, there was this whole thing where they got shrunk down to the size of pixies and were supposed to help a fairy kingdom steal a thing back from a wizard on the way back and they wanted to shrink this guy's character's tiger down and he's like no and everyone was like okay his character and charlene the tiger are out there doing their own thing and we're all doing this adventure and then we meet up afterwards and move on to the next thing he didn't like it and therefore just kind of shut down you have to be careful of that the other pitfall i've found is like you said content editing i struggle if somebody gives me something that i just don't really enjoy dealing with as a gm like they give me some sort of organization or some sort of place or some sort of thing that they're obviously very interested in i'm like i have no desire to build that play that run that offer that anything and it's like it's really hard to still value what the player is giving you while still making sure you protect your own enjoyment of the game because the gm is a player too yes GM is a player too. You don't have to just take anything the players give you at face value without making sure it is something that you can actually work with. Mm -hmm. Develop those content editing skills to work with the player to make sure it's something that still hits the points they want, but also fits into what you can actually work with. So where would you recommend somebody start this type of GMing for the first time? It's not so much GMing because it's a collaborative thing, but I would say Kingdom 2nd Edition, which I reviewed on Gnomes 2. <laughs> that is a neat thing to uh, check out where you're basically building an organization and, you know, seeing what kind of you kind of brainstorm, what kind of uh, obstacles are going to be engaging this organization. And you end up coming up with all kinds of stories based on that when you play through that. It's not my fault. The cards from Fate are awesome. Oh, great. <laughs> Yes. For a while, I was that was like my Saturday game at the game store was we would just play that and trying to come up with a story based on the prompts that you draw from those decks is just amazing. And it was a lot of fun. And we ended up with a story about, you know, one group of people that didn't have any mouths and another group of people that had mouths all over their bodies <laughs> and trying to get them to work together. I can't even get into all the details, but it was great in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Senda? Boy, shout out to It's Not My Fault. I used to run literally <laughs> two-minute fate games with a single roll based on that deck at conventions and record them, and it was lots of fun. I was really into seeing how short I could make it. So I would actually recommend for this kind of thing Questlandia, which is, again, a collaborative, literally a collaborative world-building game, but it's really fun to play, and you get to tell a story um, together. 
And it's a good way to just test out how that feels, both as like a player or as maybe a GM being able to ask the questions or like how it works for your group if they're going to be into it or not. I would also actually highly recommend For the Queen because that is like really low commitment world building, like past the card world building. You have a lot of time to like think and process things like as other people take their turns and it's very calm and chill and doesn't take very long to do. So I think that that's actually also a fantastic intro. It's very calm and chill unless your eight-year-old decides to have their entire family murdered (laughs) off screen. (laughs) I mean, obviously they were world building, it sounds like to me. Oh, goodness. Gosh, the other one is one that I used to run at conventions all the time. If you are a GM and you're like, I want a game that's going to make me do this with my players and not give my players a, a a chance or a choice... They're going to do it, and then I'm going to take whatever they say, and we're going to go from there. Then uh, the game that I would recommend is One Last Job, because One Last Job actually literally starts with each character having to create enough world to wrap around the next character and introduce who the next character is. And then just someone just steps forward and says, sure, I'll play this person. And then they have to come up with who the next person is. That's like a, a practice in... Trusting the other players at your table (laughs) to be good improvisers and hand you something cool to work with. But you have to like world build that scene that you're walking into where you're going to find the next person to like set up their situation and why they would take on this one last job when they all left this little group to begin with. (laughs) So that game is great fun. And that first um, setup of characters and world, it's built in and the game doesn't work without it. When you're ready to just thrust it upon your players, that is a really fun one to do it with because it's just neat. And it's a one shot. So again, low commitment. So if everybody's like, I, this was interesting, but I hate these characters. No problem. You're not going to play them next week. (laughs) It's fine. Yeah, I don't know, Ange, what do you think? So I would say if you're looking for a, a game, a specific game that does this, I would say find the Powered by the Apocalypse game that tickles your genre fancy. Mm-hmm. If you have a genre you love, there is probably a PBTA game out there that does it. Just find whichever one that is. Some of them are better than others, but it will basically like lead you into doing that. If you don't want to go that far and you just want to do it in whatever system you are comfortable running, When you start a campaign in your session zero, first of all, do a session zero. Mm. Second of all, have everyone build their characters as a pre-existing group and have them make connections between each other. This is something I have always enjoyed and I've done it for almost everything I have run as a campaign. And it took some time to develop the skills to know what I needed to push on my players to make them do this well. Because the first time I did it, their connections were so superficial that they didn't matter at all once the game started. And I almost had out-of-character conflict between players because they made characters that were so contradictory to each other. It was bad. But make them meaningfully connect their characters to each other. And out of that, you will get world-building things that you can work into your game that will keep them more engaged and involved in the game. Last question, do you have advice for the players that are in these games? This is a really good time to treat your table kind of like a brainstorming session. You don't have to spit out things that you know people aren't going to like, right? Like you can self-edit. It's okay. But don't be scared to present ideas. Like just don't be. And also don't take it to heart 
if they don't end up working. A lot of times when we're collaborating like this, you're throwing a bunch of stuff out on the table and then you're figuring out what sticks and what works. And it's okay if the first vision that you had in your head ends up morphing when other people touch it and change it um, and it continues to evolve. The thing that I would say is the giving with your ideas, consider them kind of gifts to the table. Once they're out, they're shared and everybody kind of has gratitude for that shared nugget of good creative thing that we can now hang more stuff on. So I I guess the key to me for all of this, and I think it's key as players, is to think of it sometimes more in improv terms, which is being able to say, yeah, that's a really cool idea. And also, here's another cool thing. And, And give people things to play off of and give them reasons to invest and involve and give people things that involve their characters, too. This is your chance to get everybody invested. And yeah, you're not the GM, but the GM shouldn't have to do this stuff alone. Like, be a good player and help them. Yes. And pick up some of that work. And your GM will love you a lot <laughs> for leaning in and having that investment and bringing other people into that investment. I think maybe the most difficult part as a player is getting over a little bit of that being shy, potentially. Yeah. Or being scared that you're going to do something or say something that is, quote, wrong. It's kind of no wrong answers in improv kind of thing. And to that, I would say practice is actually the key because it's something that gets much more comfortable the more that you do it. So if you can engage in some games like For the Queen or that kind of thing, like go play some Questlandia, like... Whatever it is, if you sit down and play some of that stuff, those things will actually help you practice and then it will get easier to be less shy or less scared that you're going to do it wrong at the table. It's a confidence thing. I would say if you are the person at the table that is really excited about an idea and somebody else is stalling out, don't be afraid to volunteer to go before that person that's stalling out. Mm -hmm. If you're the person that's stalling out, don't be afraid to ask for someone else to go first, because sometimes your brain works a lot better once you have something to bounce off of when other ideas and other ideas start to uh, float around the table. The other thing is, I think a lot of GMs get over this, but sometimes as a player, I think people still think that, you know, if I use an identifiable trope, that's bad and it's not bad. Stories are made up of tropes. Tropes are the Legos of stories. (laughs) So if there is a trope that you like, do not be afraid to throw that out there as one of your ideas. You know, and if other people don't like how that trope is used in some instances or in some contexts, that'll come up. But don't be afraid to throw it out there. I'd say the the key thing, both of what Jared and Senda said, be giving, don't be afraid, ask somebody else to go next if you need to. Remember, it's a collaborative thing. I think this this is something that, Some players tend to forget when they get into games because they just get so wrapped up in their character and what they're doing. And you got to remember, it's about what is fun for everyone at the table. So build up what you're interested in, but also help build up what everyone else is interested in. Dive into it. Pull everyone else along on your shenanigans, too. (laughs) I think we've said as much as we can say about world building for the moment. I mean, we could go on for hours, but we'll call it for now. This show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You too can have a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnome Stew website at the Gnome Stew Patreon. This ad is brought to you by Lukewarm Cable, the source for all your interplanar gaming travel needs. Look up a destination on Lukewarm Cable and you'll get a summary of all your choices for getting there and staying there for the time of your life. If you're enjoying the Gnome Cash, you'll probably like many of the other Misdirected Mark shows. Here's one to check out. On the Misdirected Mark, <laughs> Phil, Chris, Bob, and Jerry break down... And get inside gaming 
game mastering, playing games, and game design, and are now doing an actual play series with a partner game design discussion series in an effort to entertain and inform you. You can find all of us at gnomestew.com, at gnomestew on Twitter, and gnomestew on Facebook. Gnomes, is there anything else you want to give a shout out to today? Since I brought it up earlier, the Spectaculars setting book, you can buy that separate from all of the other PDFs in the game. And that is a great resource to have just for world building for Supers game. Any Supers game, seriously. Yeah, honestly. So, you know, you might want to check that out. Senda, do you have anything? The thing is, we didn't actually talk about this at all during this episode, but if you really want help practicing any of these things, then the thing you should look up is the second edition of Improv for Gamers by Heron Twelves, um, which is from Evil Hat Games. And there's a bunch of fantastic exercises and stuff in there that are very low, scary impact and easy to just mess around with friends and do and practice and try. So I will say Improv for Gamers. I'm going to go completely off script and recommend uh, Kenka.io. I have been using it for campaign management for my Depths of Zendrick D&D campaign, and it has been an awesome resource to share information with my players. I initially was looking at World Anvil, but it had some issues I didn't like, and it was a little expensive, so I ended up switching everything over to Kanka.io, and it has proven to be a great alternative for the more expensive options out there. So there will be the link in the show notes to everyone. So, do you think we built this city enough that we're not going to get thrown in the stew? I answered the question wrong, so probably not. (laughs) Goodbye. Sploosh.